Looking forward to our time now in uh, God's Word. If you'll take your Bible, and uh, if you haven't already, uh, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be doing some work today, uh, so you'll want to definitely be in Luke. Uh, we're looking at Luke. Uh, there are four Gospels, as you know, obviously, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and John, and they all tell the story of Jesus. Uh, he's so important. He needs at least these four Gospels to tell his story. And we're looking at one of them, the Gospel of Luke. And specifically, we've been looking at the introduction to Luke in chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 1 and 2 are the introduction. This is who Jesus is. He's the King of Israel. Then chapters 3 through 9, it is like Jesus presents himself to Israel as their king. And he proves that he is the promised king. And then there's a, a turning point in chapters 9, 10, and 11 where you see that Israel is rejecting Jesus as king. And Luke starts focusing in on Jesus' last journey to Jerusalem. And as he goes to Jerusalem, he knows that he's going to die. His followers kind of think that he's going there to be anointed king. And Jesus knows he's going to die. This is not a surprise to him. He's going for the cross. And for most of these chapters, as he talks about what it means to follow him, he is trying to get his disciples uh, to understand that following him right now means that they'll have to pick up their cross. They didn't expect a cross. And so he has to get them ready for what it would be like after he was crucified. And then in chapters 19 through 24, we get Jesus's last week. Luke zooms in and talks about the crucifixion, and he wants to prove that the crucifixion is not a failure, uh, but part of the plan. And so this is the conclusion to his gospel. But we've been looking at chapters 1 and 2 the past few weeks, and uh, this is just a start, because obviously we can't preach the whole gospel all at once. We kind of have to let it unfold for us, which is maybe a little difficult for some of us, honestly, because we like the big picture. And, uh, and most of us, we wouldn't really like to do this with a movie, what we're doing, where we watch five minutes of the movie and then somebody turns it off and they explain that scene and then come back the next week and get the next five minutes. We want to watch the whole movie. And yet there's so much going on here. You see how long it takes just to understand one small part of Luke. And so it's just not possible. We have to take it in sections. And right now we're in the introduction. We're not in the conclusion, so we're, we're not getting the conclusion yet. We're in the introduction. Luke is, what he's doing is introducing us to some themes and ideas that we have to understand first, almost like a teacher in that first class that you have where she's like, you know, these are some of the topics that we're going to talk about this year. And you remember, so far, we've even had to take the introduction in sections. It's so big. And we've looked at verses 1 to 25, which is a lot of verses, and then verses 26 through 38, and then verses 39 through 45, and now 46 through 56. I was going to try to get to verse 80, believe it or not, uh, but that's crazy. That's too much. So we're just going to look at Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 56. And you know, if anybody asks you, why are we doing this? It's because we want to see Jesus, simple. In the middle of all this study and looking at words and trying to understand how things fit together, I don't want us to forget that. We want to see Jesus. 
And I'm going to be saying that over and over and over again, actually. That's the purpose of this series. Right now, we see with our ears. The Spirit of God enables us to see Jesus as we listen to his word. And I think, without a doubt, that is our biggest need. We need to see Jesus. And by that, I mean enjoy and delight in Jesus. And one great way we do that is by studying Luke's gospel. And I just love Luke's gospel. I hope you can see that. And, and, you know, I hope that you're growing to love Luke's gospel as well, because he really is an artist, Luke. He says he's writing this gospel in an orderly way in verse 3. And he's not kidding. Everything is there where it is for a reason. It's almost like listening to a symphony, reading Luke. And I'm not a musician, but it's like a symphony where there's so much going on And yet, it's not a postmodern symphony. I mean, it's everything is where it should be. And and that's Luke. Like, take this introduction. He's setting us up in this introduction for the rest of the gospel. This is so well planned. And again, you have to be okay with the fact that he's not giving us all the answers yet. It's only the first couple chapters. But he's trying to put some things in place so we'll understand what's coming later. It's like Luke, and if you've been here, you know I've been saying, it's like Luke is giving us the answer to a problem, but obviously that answer isn't gonna do you much good if you don't know what the problem is. And so in these first couple chapters, there's this introduction so you can understand the question or the problem the rest of the gospel is gonna be answering. But of course, he doesn't do it grocery list style or engineer style, like one, two, Three. Instead, he tells stories. He shows us. And one of the primary things he shows us in these first couple chapters is just how big and important Jesus is. Because if you're going to understand the problem Luke is solving, you have to understand the claims that were being made about Jesus. And first, he starts with the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, you remember. And what he's doing in that story is connecting What's happening with Jesus with the Old Testament? Matthew begins this way, Luke as well. It's almost like go back. To understand what's coming, you have to go back and make sure you've read what came before. And so he tells that story about Zechariah and Elizabeth in such a way to get you thinking about Abraham and Sarah and Hannah and her son Samuel. And that is all purposeful because Jesus is the fulfillment of a promise God made in the Old Testament about the seed of a woman, a descendant of Eve, who would defeat Satan. And I'm assuming a little bit of biblical knowledge there, but so was Luke. And this story about Zechariah and Elizabeth is designed to help you make that connection between Jesus and that seed in the Old Testament promise, because at some key moments in the Old Testament, when God stepped in to propel that plan forward, you find barren women and miraculous births. And so we're being set up with Elizabeth being barren and Zechariah and Elizabeth being old to think about what's happening with Jesus like that. And after this first story, we're expecting this key movement forward in God's salvation plan. And to help us know exactly how it's moving forward, an angel shows up and starts basically quoting Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, about this prophet God was going to send right before he steps in. 
Malachi 4, 5 says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. That was almost the, the very last word of God for 400 years. And then Luke chapter 1, this angel says, here he is, that prophet. So that is big. And there is so much more embedded into that story, actually. Like the fact that it happens at the temple. The first story in Luke happens in the temple, and then the second half of Luke is Jesus journeying to the temple, and then towards the end of Luke, Jesus is explaining the destruction of the temple, and the very last verse of Luke is Jesus with, or the disciples in the temple, and then Acts opens up, which is a sequel to Luke, second chapter in the temple, and the rest of Acts is a story of God sending the apostles from the temple to the world, and of course, there's also how Zechariah doesn't believe here in chapter 1, and that results in God silencing Zechariah, which is a picture of what was going to happen with the Jews and Jesus and the gospel. And then the part I love is where Zechariah comes out after meeting with the angel, and he sees all these people waiting there, and they're actually waiting there because they're expecting a blessing from Zechariah. That's what the priest would do after coming out of the holy place. He would raise his hands and bless the people. But of course, Zechariah is unable to do that, so they leave unblessed you might say and yet you know how Luke ends the gospel is with Jesus ascending to heaven having made his great sacrifice and what does Luke say Jesus does as he ascends to heaven he raises his hands and blesses the disciples that's the language used there and so it's like a transition we see Jesus doing what the religious leadership of Israel couldn't do and with the physical temple being destroyed Jesus is the place we're going to find that blessing but the main point of that first story, Jesus is the fulfillment of these great Old Testament promises. And then there was the second story, Mary. And with Mary, with that story, it's kind of like, okay, now I see you're making some big claims about Jesus. You've made that clear. But look at him, Luke. Are, are you sure you're on the right track with what you're saying about Jesus? And if you are, you're going to have to prove that he's able to do all that you're claiming about him when he looks so insignificant. And so you have this angel who shows up again, the same angel, who says, yeah, we're on the right track. And we know that because he connects Jesus to the Abrahamic covenant. And then he proclaims that he's going to be a king and he's going to be able to fulfill the Davidic covenant because he's going to rule forever. And how do we know that? What's the proof? One big proof is the way he's conceived. He doesn't have a human father. His father's God. And so he's more than just another ancestor of David. He is an ancestor of David, but even more. It's like what we're reading in the Old Testament, but bigger. Something unusual is going on here. What? What exactly? Because that's the next question, right? You've told me who he is. What is he going to do? Or maybe we could refine that question a little bit because the angel told Mary his name is going to be Jesus, and that means Savior. So we know what's going on. He's going to save. We know that. And that salvation has to do something to do with him setting up a, a kingdom and ruling as a king. We know that as well. But what kind of salvation is this king going to bring exactly? Who is it for? What's it going to accomplish? Why is it so exciting? Those are the kinds of questions we should be asking, and to answer those questions, it's like Luke brings some people in, in chapters 1 and 2, to sing some songs. It's funny, I kind of picture this part of Luke like a musical, where the action stops, and you have these 
characters who sing songs to explain what's going on. And in Luke, they're not singing exactly, obviously. It just says they said, but they're speaking poetry, at least. So it's like spoken word, maybe. And in this first chapter, it's a woman and a man. And in the second chapter, you have a man and a woman. Actually, you have an angel, a man, and a woman, which I guess is what you have in the first chapter, too. But they're like offering explanations. And what I want you to see is just how big the salvation they were expecting God to provide really is. That's what we're talking about now, how big the salvation God is providing is. I was listening to someone who was asking, is your salvation big enough over and over as they were looking at these verses? And that's a good question. Is your salvation big enough? Because I think the, a lot of us, the way we view salvation is not big enough. And these verses are here to show you how big the salvation godly Jewish believers were expecting God to provide through Jesus is. And like I said, this is an introduction, so they don't say everything. It's like a trailer. You don't see the whole movie, but you get a glimpse of what it's supposed to be about. And, and yet I think what they say really does set up the question that Luke's going to answer. You remember he's writing why? That they might be certain. And why were they struggling with being certain? It's because of how big the salvation they were expecting God to provide was. You see these expectations about the salvation God was going to provide through Jesus, and you're going to see why they might have struggled with being certain and needed an explanation. But first, in verses 39 through 56, he brings in Mary. So he introduces the first speaker. He says, in those days Mary arose. Mary is the first person he introduces us to in order to explain the salvation God's accomplishing through Jesus. First human being. The angel explained a little, but Mary's the first person he brings in to explain this salvation, which is by itself significant enough to notice, actually, because this is a teenage girl we're talking about. In fact, I was thinking even as I was sitting there getting ready to come up, it's sort of funny that I'm going to spend about an hour not funny, it's not funny, but it's interesting that I'm going to spend about an hour talking about a teenage girl's poem. This is a, a teenage girl that we're talking about. So understand, it's like I want to bring in someone to explain the most significant event in the history of the universe. And the first person I'm bringing in on the stage, you're waiting for it, is this teenage girl. You wonder why we have kids in the service. Just joking. But <laughs> she brings in this teenage girl. And in that culture, that is like double-double. In fact, uh, the way Luke does this, I just love it. Because you're reading this story about Zechariah in verses 1 to 25. And so say you didn't know anything about the gospel. You were just a person in that day. Who do you want to talk to you about the Bible or about the significance of what God's doing? You want Zechariah, obviously. I mean, I'm not saying he was famous or anything, but Jewish people respected religious leadership, right? And you kind of get a sense in the Gospels, they were almost like the celebrities of the day. And he was religious leadership. He was a priest and he was old. And even in this story, he'd just been able to go into the holy place. And think about the history of that. Not everyone got to do that. That was such a huge privilege. So if you're wanting someone to talk to you about the Old Testament, you're wanting Zechariah. And yet first, instead, Luke introduces you to his teenage niece. Imagine, I'm being funny, but 
Imagine you have a conference and you're expecting John MacArthur, this famous pastor, author, to show up, and instead you get his 13-year-old granddaughter. It's like, uh, wait, what? That's different, right? And so it's almost like before Mary speaks, Luke has to introduce her to us and show us why we should learn from her. And so what happens? We have this angel who says she's favored by God twice, and that's a pretty good start. And then we have Elizabeth, who we know is righteous and blameless and important because she's basically like Sarah or Hannah, and she calls Mary blessed. And the word she's using for blessed is the word for God has acted in her life in a unique way. And so here's this girl I'm saying that in spite of our reservations, clearly we should listen to. That's number one. And then just before Luke has her come up to speak real quickly, it's like he tries to clear up any misunderstanding in verses 39 through 45 as to why we should listen because he knows we could go to the opposite extreme. We shouldn't overlook her, but we shouldn't think funny things about her either because it's not really that she in and of herself is so important. So don't put her on this pedestal like she's the savior. She's not the savior. She's important because of the role she played. She gives birth to the savior and she's someone to learn from because she had faith. That's why we're listening to her. Verse 45, key verse. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. And so we're supposed to learn from Mary because she's a right, she's an example of a right response to what God's doing through Jesus. And that right response is faith. But faith in what? That's the question now. And this is uh, verses 46 through 56. What was Mary trusting God for? She tells us. She tells us. And you can break down what she says into two sections. She starts out personal in verses 46 through 50, and then she goes bigger in verses 51 through 55, corporate, community, nation. But you know, even when she starts out personal, what does she say? Verse 46. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And you can tell, listening to that, that those lines are kind of parallel, right? Mary wants to make God look great. This is called the Magnificat, actually, because that's the first word in the old Latin translation, Magnificat, magnify. My soul magnifies the Lord. And this is coming from the inside, she says. My soul, verse 46. My spirit, verse 47. Those are just different words for the same thing, her inner person. Something has happened, and it's impacted her deeply, and she wants to respond by praising God and rejoicing in God's salvation. And the way it's written here, it could be, my spirit rejoiced in God's salvation, past tense. And so it's like, now, present tense, I've thought about that, and my soul wants to magnify God. That's probably what's happening. But really, either way, rejoice is rejoice, past tense, present tense. That second phrase, rejoice, is important because that's a big theme that Luke's wanting to highlight in these first couple chapters. It's like a, a key word. Because you remember, what did the angel say was going to happen at John the Baptist's birth? Verse 14, he said, many will rejoice. And then what happened when John met Jesus in verse 44? Elizabeth says, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And then if you go to chapter 2, verse 10, the angel meets the shepherds and announces Jesus' birth by saying, I bring you good news of great joy. So joy... Rejoicing in these first couple chapters is connected to what God's doing through Jesus. Actually, even if you go to the very end of Luke, the last couple verses are about the apostles experiencing great joy. So this is, this is a theme in Luke, and it's not a little bit of happiness. This is a response. God is acting. 
And the context, you remember, Israel is in exile. Rome is ruling over them. They've got Herod as a king. It's a sad moment in history. But suddenly, almost out of nowhere, at the beginning of Luke, it's like God is on the move. God is doing something through Jesus that the angels say is going to bring joy. And Mary is one of the first examples of that. She's rejoicing. She's experiencing that joy. So this is personal, but at the same time, it's sort of representative. She represents all the people who are going to experience joy joy at the work of God through Jesus. So it's kind of like if I say, you know, people are going to be happy when this happens. But I don't tell you a whole lot about the this, a little, but not a whole lot. I just say again, a lot of people are going to be happy when this happens. I repeat myself. And then after that, I say, you know what, let me have you listen to this lady who was so happy when this happened to her. She's going to tell you why. What am I doing? I'm having her explain what it is about what's happening that brings such great joy. It's personal, but it's also representative. And so what is she joyful about that we should all be so joyful about? That's the question. She says in verses 46 and 47, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. And that's almost like the topic sentence really. You know, when you're writing an essay, let me be real clear what I'm writing about so no one is confused. And the word that you might circle in her topic sentence is Savior. Mary's rejoicing. We can all rejoice because of God. This whole psalm here, if you look at verse 48, is about God. He's the subject of every verb. He's looked. He's done great things. He's shown. He's scattered. He has brought down. He has filled. He has helped. But what about God exactly, specifically? God acting. God saving. God acting to save. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And that right there again is like bang. Because you remember, Mary is being brought in to define this moment, to explain the significance. And we know Luke's ultimately writing about who? Who is this gospel about? This gospel is about Jesus. But look, here in the introduction, he brings in Mary to illustrate what is it about Jesus that brings such great joy And who does she talk about? She talks about God acting to save. And that makes sense, of course, because what does the angel tell her to name her son? He tells her to name him Jesus, which means Yahweh is salvation. So this is Mary showing us. This is really not just a name. This is what is exciting about Jesus. What just happened to me, this moment, Mary is saying, is all about God himself Stepping in to human history to save. And now here we are back again asking that same question we were asking earlier. Okay, so God is coming to save, but what kind of salvation are we talking about? What does this salvation mean? And I'm going to show you some things about the way Mary describes this salvation that might be a little surprising. The first one isn't, because the first thing you should probably notice is something we've been stressing the past couple weeks, and that's how this salvation is connected back to the Old Testament. It's not a completely new idea of salvation. It's got Old Testament context. And we know that because Mary's not exactly quoting here, but almost. It's not plagiarism, but it sure is close, because there are so many allusions in this prayer. Since the Bible was ultimately written by God, I guess he can't plagiarize himself, but there are so many allusions in this prayer. You, you just start chasing them down, it almost feels endless. But there is one that is probably the most significant. 
In fact, you might say it's almost like Mary's singing harmony. And I don't know pretty much anything about melodies and harmonies, honestly. Uh, I always thought my mom was not a great singer, and I realized later she was singing harmony, so I really don't know much <laughs> about harmonies. But I think this is right. Two people are singing, and one person does that the harmony. And it's not the exact same tune, but it matches up. If that's not what it is, you got the idea. Because that's kind of what Mary is doing here with someone in the Old Testament named Hannah. So if you go back to the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 2, at least in your mind, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, this lady named Hannah gives birth, and it's an answer to prayer. And she prays, and if you take her prayer and kind of put it right up there beside Mary's, you might do this in your devotions this week, take Hannah's prayer and put it right by Mary's, you'll see there are a lot of similarities. And that's important because Hannah's prayer is actually a prophecy. And it's a prophecy, not about Samuel so much, but about what God is going to do through David. And that's significant context, especially after the angel has said about Jesus, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. That's this huge statement. And then imagine almost one of the next things that happens is Mary's praying a very similar prayer to the one Hannah prayed about what God was going to do through David. So it's not like it's complicated to make this connection. It's right there on the surface. And yet, how does that connection help you? It helps you because, look, God acts in history in observable patterns, so this is like all throughout the Bible. Something happens, and then it happens later again. And it's a little different, but it's similar. Read Genesis. You see how often it's like, is this the same story? Not quite the same story, but it's really close to that first story. That is happening all throughout the Bible, and the first event helps you understand the second. It's almost like one of those home design shows. Almost. Not totally, but... You know those home design shows where the designer uh, draws something on a piece of paper for the carpenter, and then later the carpenter builds what she drew. The drawing is something. It's not the final product. They're, they're different things, but the drawing helps you get an idea of what's coming later in the show. And so making this connection between these two prayers, Mary and Hannah's, helps you because it's a way of saying, if you want to understand the salvation God's providing through Jesus, you need to look back to the history of David because it gives you a pattern. So in other words, if you take your picture of salvation, how you think about what God's doing, and then look at the picture scribbled on the piece of paper of David rising to power and defeating his enemies, are there any similarities between the two? And this is a good question because if you're like me, you probably think of salvation mostly in spiritual terms, like forgiveness of sin and being born again, and that's really important. Obviously, in fact, one of the whole goals of Luke is to show you how important that part is. But that's not all there is to salvation. And that's pretty clear if you look at the kind of salvation Mary was expecting God to provide. Was what she says. She's expecting something Davidish. How's that for a really profound technical word? Davidish. What kind of salvation was she expecting? It's connected to the Old Testament, yes, but specifically to David. It's a Davidish kind of salvation, number one. Meaning physical, meaning a king, meaning a throne, meaning a rule. And why is that so exciting for her specifically? How many of you like politics? That's why this is exciting for her. 
We don't like politics when we, when we don't think it will make a difference. We like politics when it will make a difference. And she definitely thinks politics will make a difference. She expects Jesus to be installed as king and for that rule to change everything. And she starts describing the way his rule is going to make a difference if you look down by reflecting on what happened to her as a kind of illustration. So understand, what Mary's about to say is specifically true for her. None of us are going to be the mother to Jesus, obviously. But as she's praising God here for that, she illustrates the nature of the kind of salvation God's providing for anyone like Mary who's trusting God's promises. What God did for her gives a picture of why God's saving through Jesus this way is so exciting for the rest of us. And, you know, if you look at verse 48, it's because she says, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And look about that. Look at that. Think about that for a minute. If you just pause. If you had to choose one word to, to summarize what she says God was doing in her life at that moment, what word would you use? What word would you use to describe how Mary explains what God did for her in verse 48? I think you'd use the word reversal. That's why she's so excited. And so if you go back to that key question we were asking earlier, is your salvation big enough? Because when Mary talks about the significance of what God was doing through Jesus in her life, how does she see it? She sees it as a reversal. But what kind of reversal? Check it out. For he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. And she's talking about herself again, definitely. But if you go down to verse 54, how does she describe Israel, the nation? The same way. He's helped his servant, Israel. And actually, if you look at verse 52, how does she describe Israel in the second part of the verse? She says, God has exalted those of humble estate. And so there she's not talking about herself. She's talking about the nation. And that's why I say this is like personal and representative, personal and corporate. What God's doing through Jesus in her life represents what God's doing on a much bigger scale. And that's what makes it so exciting because what's he doing? He's reversing her humble estate. And what does she mean? What does she mean God's reversing her humble estate? In what ways is she humble, Mary? Because she's not so much talking about her attitude there. She's talking about her condition, her situation in life. And so how is her situation humble? She could be talking physically, of course, because she's not wealthy, rich. She could be talking socially because she's an insignificant person from an insignificant place. And honestly, at this point, she's in a very vulnerable situation as well. She's going to be scandalized and shamed for the rest of her life. You understand that, right, about Mary? Because she's this pregnant teenage girl who's not married. And even when Jesus grew up, people knew that Joseph wasn't Jesus' father. And so Mary had to take that as well her whole life. And that was super shameful back then. Physically, socially, she's in a humble place. And actually, if you think about it, one of the reasons the world was looking down on Mary was because of the grace God had shown her. She was pregnant because God had chosen her. She didn't do this. God did this. And yet, of course, here in faith, she's saying, I'm rejoicing because you know what God's going to do? He's looked on the humble estate of his servant. He sees that and he's going to reverse it. For behold, from now on, generations will call me blessed. All generations will call me blessed. 
And she's got to be thinking about what Elizabeth just said, because that had to be so surprising with this old aunt of hers shouting for, for joy. That had to be a strange moment for Mary. And that happens, and she realizes, wow, what God's doing through Jesus is taking me from a place of shame and insignificance and giving me a position of honor and glory, really. In fact, I wonder if you ever thought of Mary like that, as having this position of honor and glory, because this is real. We know Mary's not perfect, and she's not more important than Jesus, for sure, or anything weird like that. But Mary is famous and significant. And if we're Christians, we honor Mary, and we're thankful for Mary. And we're still talking about Mary and asking Mary, did you know, every Christmas. And I mean, this is a teenage girl from Nazareth we're talking about. That is a stunning reversal. And it illustrates, that's the thing, it illustrates the kind of salvation she was expecting God to accomplish through Jesus. It's like David when he went to the throne. So it's kind of political. There's going to be a new king in Israel. And that act of God putting a new king on the throne is going to result in people who are shamed and people who are overlooked because of their relationship with God being honored and glorified. Sort of like what happened with Mary. This is big. Is your salvation big enough? One, Old Testament connection, David. Two, reversal, shame to glory. This is big. And in verse 49, she highlights how big by talking about the character qualities of God that are being put on display as he accomplishes this kind of salvation. This is a only God can do it kind of salvation. First, she talks about his power. She says, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. And she's going to bring that one up again in verse 51. She says, he has shown strength with his arm. And obviously, you know God doesn't have an arm, so this is uh, like a metaphor to help us understand what God's like. And in the Bible, God's arm is a picture he uses to talk about his saving power. And uh, there are two places where his arm comes up a lot, actually. I wonder if you know the two books where God's arm comes up a lot. They are Exodus and uh, Isaiah, Exodus and the New Exodus, as it's described. But the first place is when he's saving his Israel from Egypt. That's the story there in Exodus. It says he saved them with his outstretched arm. The Psalms, psalmist described it like that in the Psalms. And then the prophets, particularly Isaiah, use this idea of God's mighty arm to talk about how he's going to save his people in the future. In fact, it's right there at the beginning of Isaiah 53. And Mary's saying, that's what's happening now through Jesus. This is God's power at work. The child she is bearing will accomplish a salvation like the one we see in Exodus, but even bigger, the one promised in the prophets. And I think that's why she brings up the concept of God's holiness as well. Second, she says, holy is his name. And holiness, we think God's moral purity, and it includes that, but even more fundamentally means God is separate. God is different. God is set apart. And that's how it's used in Psalm 111, where it says, he has sent redemption to his people, holy and awesome is his name. And that's how I think Mary's using it here. She's looking at this great reversal that she sees happening in her life, and she's going to be saying it's happening in Israel's life, and she's saying, you know what? Only God, only God can do something like this. This salvation demonstrates his absolute uniqueness. 
Is your salvation big enough? Again, is your salvation big enough? Because this salvation that she's thinking about, this David-like thing God's doing through Jesus with this stunning reversal, shame people being honored, is something powerful and something only a God like our God can do. And the reason he's doing it is to show his mercy. Verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And that's maybe the key word here in everything Mary's saying about the way God's saving. He's acting in a powerful way through Jesus as a demonstration of his pity for those who fear him. How? Again, it's, again, it's like, Mary, get more specific. Fill it out for us. Because we've got the basic idea now. It's illustrated with Mary of reversal and, and David. But let's get even more specific and look at the nature of the salvation God's providing. And in the second section Mary, of Mary's song, which is, she speaks of that salvation in a much more corporate kind of way. So she's talking about Mary sort of in verses 46 through 50, but she's not talking about Mary anymore in verses 51 through 55. Who's she talking about? It's always good in the Bible when you read it to ask who's she talking about or who are they talking about? Verse 54 tells you, who are they talking about? What does it say in verse 54? It says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And when she says Israel, three guesses who she's thinking. She's thinking Israel, the nation. And here it's interesting, she calls Israel God's servant because that word servant she uses is not the usual word for servant. It's not the one she uses of herself even. It's the word child, but it's a word that's used in Isaiah to describe the nation Israel. And I hope this is not too much, but in Isaiah, God tells Israel they're going to go into exile, which is terrible news, but he comforts them. And one way he does is Isaiah 43 and 44, where he promises his servant Israel, he's going to bring them out of exile. And I think, of course, Mary has to be meditating on that as she's thinking about how God's saving through Jesus. This is God acting to deliver Israel the way he said he would in Isaiah, the way he did when they were in bondage in Egypt, the way he promised in the prophets he would after exile. And in fact, verse 55, Mary says you can even go further back than that, the way he promised the fathers. And she pulls Abraham out specifically as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And she probably mentions Abraham because that's the big promise, the big one where he reveals his plan of basically reversing the curse. And so as she talks about what God's gonna do, it's massive. It is a absolute display of his power. It's something only God can do. It's a demonstration of his mercy because it's gonna result in God changing everything, really. And specific, specifically, if you look down, Mary points out three big changes God is gonna make in the way the world works to help his servant Israel. First of all, verse 51, he's making changes on the social level. She says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And you notice that's past tense. That makes it a little confusing. And there's a couple options for understanding why she's speaking past tense. The first is that she's talking about something God does through Jesus, but it's something he's habitually done through history. And so we can talk about it as past tense. He's acting in ways now like he's always acted. And that's true to a certain extent. He has done something like this in history for sure. But I think what he's talking about here is unique. And so the other option is that it's what they call prophetic past tense. It's something that is so certain what's gonna happen that she can speak of it as if it already happened. And that's how I think she's talking here. This is something she is certain 
God is going to do through Jesus. He is going to scatter the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. So, thoughts. God sees what's going on in people's hearts. This is not just external, this is in internal. And that tells us something about God, of course. God is going to act through Jesus to deal with the internally proud. That is one of the changes that's going to take place when Jesus rules as king. He is going to scatter the proud. And scatter is an interesting word. Why scattered to describe judgment? The illustration I could think of where God did that was the Tower of Babel, where you had all these proud people raising their fists to shake at God, and he acted in judgment to scatter them. And Mary's expecting God to do that through Jesus. The world is going to change. The internally proud are going to be judged. And she expects that, of course, because that's what the Old Testament said is going to happen. Isaiah 2.11, on the day of the Lord, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. The day that God steps into human history, Mary is expecting there's going to be a reversal. The humble are going to be exalted like Mary was. And of course, how's that going to happen? The proud are going to have to be judged. There is going to be a change on the social level. Is your salvation big enough? Mary is expecting a change on the social level. She's expecting a change on the political level. Verse 52, he's brought down the mighty from their thrones. And you know, going through this, I hope you're understanding what we're getting at because it's a little challenging because we just so typically think of salvation as simply going to heaven when we die. And Mary's clearly thinking something bigger. And you know that because when she praises God for being her savior, she starts talking about God making changes on the political level here on earth. People on thrones are going to be taken off those thrones. And you know, again, one of the reasons she's expecting that is because that's what the Old Testament promises God would do when he exalts the Messiah as king. Listen to Psalm 2, one of the most important messianic psalms in the Bible. It starts out with kings angry at God. They're taking counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, which is how it is now. We've got all these wicked rulers who make life terrible and rage against God and think they are God. But the psalmist says that doesn't phase God because God's got a plan that no one can stop. Psalm 2, verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. What's happening? I like how one man explains what's happening. He says, Psalm 2 teaches what? It teaches that the nations of the earth are in rebellion against God. When they rebel, the Lord scoffs at them and then places his king, who is also his son, in Jerusalem to rule the world. Thus, the reign of God will occur in the same place where opposition to him is presently occurring. A reversal. And that's what Mary says she thinks is happening. Verse 52. Is your salvation big enough? Changes on the social level. Changes on the political level, a new king in town. And then third, changes on the economic level. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he sent away empty. And that's not metaphorical, you know. We, we talk a lot about social justice, right? Or maybe we don't. People do. And that phrase is so loaded because there's all this stuff and it's a hard word to define and you don't always know what someone means by it. But look, that idea that... 
people are mistreated and taken advantage of is not surprising. That has been happening a long time. People in power taking advantage of people not in power because that's what sinners do. And they're especially good at doing it when they're given justification and excuses for doing it. And when there's a lot of them doing it, that's not one group of sinners who does that. That's how most sinners throughout history roll. And that's even how it was going down in Israel if you read the prophets. The righteous were suffering in Israel and the wicked were getting away with it. And prophets like Habakkuk were like, God, how long? I mean, I'm looking out there and it seems like I'm more concerned about all this injustice than you are. And that was hard for the prophets like Habakkuk. And I think that should be hard for us. That's something you should care about. That's something you should try to do what you can to change. But again, you have to hear that. We're not the only ones concerned about that. God is concerned about that. And Mary is sure God himself is acting in history to do something about it. That's included in the kind of salvation she's expecting. And ultimately, that's our hope as well, because look, we're not going to be able to fix all this. We're not even smart enough a lot of times to figure out what is at the root of all this stuff and how do we fix what's broken without breaking it more. But that doesn't mean we're hopeless because we know this is part of God's great salvation plan. There are going to be economic changes. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. And that's intense. If you just stop and think about it, maybe even you're like, wait, uh, what? Because it's so universal. It's so blanket. The, the hungry get good things and the rich are emptied. One thing I th hope we do over the years, just to stop for a second. One thing I hope we do over the years as we study the Bible is to get you to look at the Bible again and to get all of us to look at the Bible again and think about it. We get so used to the Bible, sometimes we don't even pay attention to what it actually said. That verse there is shocking. The rich are sent away empty. Most of us are, are kind of wealthy. And it's like so blanket. It should at least make us think, whoa. And it's actually a little hard in the whole gospel of Luke. So get used to it because he often talks in these extremes. But in other places, we see Jesus kind of nuances it. So overall, Luke, I don't think what Mary is saying here is quite so simple as she's expecting that the salvation God's providing is only for the hungry and not for the rich. That's the way it sounds. But there are some other passages, and there's some poetry going on in this one, and there's some context and background. So fast forward, I think what's going on, Mary's speaking as a godly Jewish person, the way prophets often spoke in Israel, because hungry, poor, and the prophets usually were righteous people, suffering for righteousness, because what was happening in general was that the wicked were prospering. If you just look at the big picture, the wicked were corrupt and prospering, and the righteous were suffering and being persecuted. And so she's saying the salvation God is providing is going to change all that. There's going to be a righteous king, and the proud are going to be judged. And that means, of course, things are going to be fair. And so you're not going to be hungry for being godly any longer. You're going to be blessed. Is your salvation big enough? That's an important question because in this introduction to Luke, when you open up Luke 1, you see God stepping in after all these years of silence and saying, you know what's happening? He's going to fulfill the Old Testament promises. And Luke starts talking about Jesus sitting on the throne of David and then proving he's able to do that through the virgin birth and showing us that Jesus really is someone unique. He's fully God and fully man. And so what are you expecting him to do? He's the savior but what kind of salvation is he coming to provide? That's kind of why Luke's writing this whole gospel. Because godly people who were reading the Old Testament, they had expectations. 
They had an idea of salvation and their expectations were big. Listen to Mary, Davidish expectations first, a reversal of the way things are kind of expectations second. And only God can do this kind of salvation third that results in changes, changes for the nation of Israel on the social level, on the political level, and on the economic level. Is your salvation big enough? Do you believe through Jesus God is going to change the way everything is? Establish a kingdom with the perfect king where the shamed are glorified and the humble are exalted, where wicked in positions of power are judged and there's peace and prosperity for God's people. Because Luke's pretty clear, Mary is being held up to us as an example of faith. This is someone to learn from and this seems to be the kind of salvation she's expecting. Not just one you put in a little category and, and leaves everything else the same, but a complete and total reversal of how things are instead. Do we expect that kind of salvation? I think Luke's saying that we should. But how can we expect that when it doesn't seem like it happened? I mean, that's the question. Because here at the beginning, Mary's expecting all this, and then 33 years later, we fast forward, and what happens? She's standing at the cross, watching her son be crucified. Does that mean Jesus failed? Does that mean all this isn't going to happen? Ah, Luke says, if you're asking that question, you're ready for my gospel. Because that's the question I want to answer. I want to help you be certain Jesus really is the fulfillment of every single big promise in scripture about salvation, that he is the one and only savior and the salvation that he's coming to provide is big. But to get his answer, going to have to come back and listen as we study the rest of this gospel. Because I warned you at the beginning, uh, this is just the introduction, not the conclusion. That's why we're going to take our time walking our way through Luke. Let's pray. Lord, there's this probably some details that were like, I need, to, I need some explanation. I need some understanding. Theophilus must have had those same questions as we think about Luke writing this gospel to him. Lord, we pray that you'll humble us enough so that we can hear your answers. But right now, we also pray that you'll give us confidence that the cross wasn't a surprise to you. That, that's kind of the point. The cross wasn't a surprise to you. It, it didn't stop you from fulfilling the promises you made in the Old Testament. It's part of the plan. And we're going to need Luke and the rest of the New Testament to understand that. But at the, the very basic level, Lord, we can see that your plan for us and for this world and uh, for, for Jesus is not just for us to live and, and die and go into the ground and that's it. You have a, a, a plan for this eternal kingdom, ultimately, this eternal kingdom in which Jesus is going to rule and things are going to be perfect. And uh, Lord, we should long for that the way Mary did and even more, actually, because we have more information now about how you're doing that than she did then. 
Thank you for our time together today, Lord. Uh, please, Holy Spirit, do that work that we so desperately need you to do and preach this sermon uh, more clearly even when we leave this place to us as we go about serving you throughout the week. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>